see you guys. Um, I'm Sarah Huffines. I'm in the English department. I direct the Writing Center. Um, and <laughs> I guess that's the only introduction that really needs to happen. Um, so I'm happy to be here, happy to have a chance to talk to you here at the beginning of the new semester of the new year. I love the new year. The freshness of it all, the clean start, the many, many articles telling me how to finally organize my closet, maximize my exercise routine, and plan my meals a month at a time. That last one is probably my favorite genre of New Year articles, um, which is food articles. I really enjoy good writing about food. In fact, a few years ago, I considered teaching a special topics class about food writing. We'd cover all kinds of genres, uh, certainly fiction that uses food as an extended metaphor or crucial plot point, like Gourmet Rhapsody or Babette's Feast. But because my main interest is in nonfiction, I'd likely read works that combine food and theology, like Supper of the Lamb, or food and sustainability, like Animal Vegetable Miracle. I'm a big fan of food memoir, too, and I guess we'd have to read Julia Child's My Life in France and work through at least some of the other self-discovery through food memoirs, um, a shocking number of which take place in France. Uh, maybe we could end that section with Julie and Julia, one writer's quest to cook her way through mastering the art of French cooking in a year. I could actually go on, really, uh, but I'll stop here. It never became a class because I didn't have the time to get into the critical literature, uh, but there are always other times. In fact, now that I think of it, given how many of these take place in France, maybe I should do a May term in Paris. <laughs> you heard it here first. Your parents would never pay for that. Uh, what I love about food writing is well, lots of things, but it's a combination of two of my favorite things, food and reading. Those who know me know that I love to cook. Probably even you aren't surprised to hear that after hearing of my dream class. And most people should probably assume that I love to read. After all, though my children know that I'm a teacher and they know what teachers do, when I try to explain the smaller discipline I find myself in, the easiest way I can explain it is to say that mommy reads books and talks about them for her job. It's a good job. And I'd like to make an argument that food and reading have more in common than just their shared space in my life. And that reading is for more than just those of us who do it for a living. I'd like to encourage you to join me in thinking of reading as good food, as something that is nourishing, as essential to not only what we do here at Covenant, um, but also what it will mean for you out in the world and for your life as a Christian. Reading can nourish us, our intellect, our creativity, our souls. It's the kind of input we need to keep living well. It gives us insight, pleasure, food for thought, practice at empathy, the ability to see new possibilities, depth in its explanation of ideas, quiet, and if you're reading a physical book, a low distraction environment to really consider an idea, to pause and reflect and return to a text. It gives us information, knowledge, context for that information. It's something we take in and it helps us grow. And reading should mark our lives as Christians in particular. After all, God has chosen to communicate to us, his people, through the written word. And the Bible uses the metaphor of holy text as food, right? Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John, they're all asked to eat the words presented to them. 
Um, in Revelation, John is handed a little scroll and told, take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. Jeremiah says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. God's word feeds us, and we should devour it. But I don't want to belabor the metaphor, or at least not yet. God gave us a book, so we are called to read it, deeply, widely, and with reflection. And you know this. And you won't be surprised to hear me say that reading is important in our lives and not just in scripture. If we want to be informed and responsible citizens, people of the mind, imaginative or just knowledgeable, we have to read. And I mean books and articles, not just listicles and headlines of news shared on Facebook. Try checking out the top 10 fiction and nonfiction books of the last year, of the last few years. See if there's something there for you. The books I've read this year, and I'm tempted to name them again, but I'll spare you, um, have shaped me in some way. They've given me something to think about, they've taught me, they've entertained me and challenged me, and have even just given me a little space to unitask, which is a truly marvelous thing. They've fed me. Not all of them have been great works of literature. There are even a few celebrity memoirs in there. And sure, they really has been. Um, and sure, those may be the equivalent of nacho cheese Doritos or bite-sized Snickers, while others are more like a colorful and fresh salad, still others like a nourishing stew. As long as I'm not only eating Doritos and bite-sized Snickers, I think they have their place. And just to narrow in a little, as you are growing in your walk as Christians, as you are preparing for the next stage of your life, I'd like to point out how fundamental reading is to your life as a college student. As my friend and colleague, Jay Green, pointed out in a chapel talk many years ago, reading is the primary job of a college student. I agree. Reading is so important at Covenant because it's one of the primary ways that you can get the information, right? Work through the problems and get the context of all you need to know. For one, there's just an efficiency issue, right? Though figures vary a good bit, um, it'd be safe to estimate that you could read at least twice as fast as you can listen. You know this, right? You've heard this? Okay. Um, but even if somehow your professors could blow through all the material you should know in a 50-minute class, they shouldn't. Because the very act of reading allows you the mental space to stop, consider, question, make connections, read, underline, and even just be quiet with the text itself. Second, you need to read for the context, for the examples, the nuances, the vocabulary choice, the thought process. Often a good writer won't tell you what she thinks. She'll get you there by showing much of the thinking process itself. Third, you need to gain the understanding for yourself. Even if you know you can access the summary of a reading somewhere, that knowledge isn't with you in the same way as if you had to read it yourself, worked through it, digested it. Apologies. And while we're talking about reading at Covenant, this is just a short point, but entirely relevant to what we're talking about here today. Just as eating a good meal with others amplifies the experience, so pairing reading with discussion enriches the whole thing. Educational study after educational study shows the benefits of class discussion. 
In just one example, um, one study found that biology students had a greater understanding of course concepts after peer discussion, even if nobody in the group had the correct understanding to begin with. So nobody in the group understand, understood the concept, they got together, they talked about it, and they worked their way to a better and more correct understanding. I think that's amazing. Discussion in the classroom can be a chance to test ideas, understanding, to improve critical thinking skills. The active nature of discussion can lead to increased student engagement. It can make classes more interesting and enjoyable for both students and faculty. And it can lead to greater student motivation. But you know this too. You know how great a class can be when lively and relevant discussion is happening as opposed to those classes when no one has read or wants to talk, or both. But we've all been in that second kind of class, the kind where if it were a meal would have been some very hungry people sitting around a table with a couple of Ritz crackers and a limp piece of celery. That's sad, why does that happen? Maybe you think this is the point in the chapel where I scold you for not making an effort, or maybe I can shame you into more reading. Well, shame won't get my three-year-old to eat a green vegetable, or any other kind for that matter, um, and I know it won't work for you, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't, that's not why I'm here. I know that not everyone will have the same associations with reading that I do, or maybe that I've mentioned. Uh, some of you may hear me talk about the joy of reading, and you picture yourself curled up in a hammock around the crater on a sunny day, lost deep in a new novel, and you are all in. And some of you may hear me talk about reading and picture your desk, a precarious pile of textbooks and printed up articles or class notes, and you look at that pile and you feel like a marathoner at the last six miles. It'll be hard, it won't be fun, but it will be good and you'll be glad you did it when it's over. That's how I imagine marathoners feel, I really have no idea. Um, <laughs> maybe someday, probably not. Uh, and some of you, some of you hear me talk about reading and picture something else entirely. Picture yourself staring at the same page, getting distracted, flipping ahead, or just skipping entire paragraphs and realizing you need to go back and read them again. Truthfully, I find myself in all three categories at different times. So sometimes the reading doesn't happen. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I think a lot of it happens because the class is set up so you don't need to, or you don't need to right away, right? So you make the choice based on the time available to you. I recognize that, and I'll actually get to that in a little bit. Um, maybe it doesn't happen because you thought it would be a good idea to take a chow class, three lit classes, and 20th century history all in the same semester. Good luck with that. But at least one, it's good to have Bill Tate in the room, isn't it? <laughs> um, sorry. But at least one major reason that reading doesn't happen, and I've heard this from some of you, and I've experienced it myself, is that it's hard to focus. It's hard to stick with reading when it's boring or difficult, or even when it's something pleasurable that you want to read. Focusing is hard. Again, I know this isn't the only reason that reading sometimes doesn't happen, but I want to highlight it here because it's close to my heart. I think a big part of it is digital distraction. The endless scroll, 
the endless links, the bursts of distraction, the look at me's of social media, the quick jolt of serotonin when somebody likes your picture. For all the goods and the good and the joys of the internet, nobody, nobody disagrees that it has trained our brains toward distraction. I find it in myself. I'll be reading a book entirely for pleasure, something I've been wanting to read, maybe I was waiting for it to come out, and I will find myself unintentionally skimming. Or I'll just check the time, or see who texted me, and before I know it, 15 minutes has passed, and I'm deep in the news app, looking at articles about cooking. And the more I'm on my phone, the more this happens. Distraction begets distraction. It's not just me, it's not just you, it's not just Dr. Davis, whose honesty and exhortations I really appreciated on Monday. In 2010, Nicholas Carr wrote The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. In it, he wrote of the problems that he and others had had being able to focus on their reading, what an effort it took for them to unplug. Much of his first chapter is just a laundry list of journalists, scholars, professional readers and writers with big-time degrees, and all of them confessing a real difficulty and sitting down to focus on reading. The brain is a plastic thing. It's a muscle that can be built in certain ways, and the more we go online, the more we are training our minds toward distraction, jumpiness, shallowness. An analogy might be helpful, uh, maybe. Ballet dancers and swimmers are some of the best all-around athletes you can find. But the physiques of these two kinds of athletes are vastly different because of the work they've trained their bodies to do. Right? Their disciplines, their practices, their habits have shaped them, literally. Of course, I want to be clear, the pleasures and services of our smartphones are real, and they serve us. But as the author of The Shallows points out, they are so much our servants, it seems impolite to notice they are also our masters. So reading, for some of us, is getting harder. Despite its importance, and despite the opportunities we have to regularly meet and learn from each other in what we're reading. Which leads me to the second part of this chapel talk. A few years ago, prompted by requirements from our accrediting agency, Covenant College started to develop to a plan to improve something about our learning environment. Actually, every school accredited by this agency has to develop a plan like this every 10 years. And it's a requirement, but it's also a neat chance for the school, for the whole community, to think about what really matters to them, what they would like to improve. So this process started in fall 2014. Right. And it included students, and board, and alumni, and staff, and faculty. And after a campus-wide survey of possible topics, and a process that involved narrowing down many different proposals to just one, Covenant decided that for the next five years, we'll be making a special effort to improve reading and discussion at the college. This is our quality enhancement plan, as it's known by our accrediting agency, more commonly referred to as the QEP. So what is the QEP? That way. The QEP is a five-year campus-wide plan to improve reading and discussion at Covenant College. We're calling it 
READ covenant. Those letters actually stand for READ, ENGAGE, ANALYZE, DISCUSS. Handy, right? Um, but you can think of it as generally just involving many of the skills and habits that are a part of reading well and being ready to discuss what you've read. Reading and discussion. I don't know why I have to keep checking to make sure it really changed. I can just look this way. Um, so I think one question you might have is why are we doing this right now? Why did we choose to focus on this particular topic? Well, it first bubbled up in conversations among faculty. We feel it when students don't or can't complete the reading. And we certainly feel it when discussion falls short. On one of our assessments, the National Survey of Student Engagement, you told us that about 20% of you either often or very often came to class without completing reading assignments. Now, I want to say very quickly that these numbers put Covenant students pretty close to the average for our peer schools. But you didn't come to Covenant College because what happens in the classroom is average. We're all here because we want to be a part of an education that really matters. So here's what we're going to do as a college to try and improve reading and discussion on campus. First, we as faculty are going to be having some conversations about how to help students dig into difficult reading and how to create conditions for meaningful classroom discussion. There's a lot of good instruction happening here on campus. And we as faculty have so much to learn from each other. Second, you may find in some of your classes that you'll be writing about the reading, doing some pre-thinking before class in the form of structured reading responses called course preparation assignments. Some of you maybe have already had some of these in class. Research has found that when reading responses are done before class and structured in a certain way, students understand the material better, they're more likely to complete the reading, and discussion can unfold in a more thoughtful and meaningful way. And third, we're going to be looking for feedback to see if our effort is getting spent in the right place. This shouldn't affect you too much, um, but look for an occasional survey or request for reflection on the process. These things are all going to officially start next semester in the fall, but you may have some faculty working on these things in the meantime. In fact, I know some of you do. Um, so that's what we're doing as a college. But I think an important question right now is what can you do? How can you be a part of this other than just showing up in these classes where people are doing these things? I'd like to make three recommendations when it comes to reading and discussion. Three things I'd love for you to keep in mind as we all press into this. I'd like to encourage you to walk toward boredom, walk toward difficulty, and walk toward embarrassment. Sounds super fun, right? So what do I mean by walk toward boredom? Well, I read the, the book Deep Work this summer, and it challenged me to my core. The author defines deep work as professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. Deep work is necessary to wring every last drop of value out of your current intellectual capacity. Shallow work, by contrast, is what you can do while you're distracted. Newport, the author, argues that deep work is valuable, rare, and meaningful. He has quite a few recommendations for setting up a life that enables deep work, and I'd encourage you to take a look at them. We have his book in the library. But the one that is most relevant to what I'm talking about today is his directive to embrace boredom, because boredom helps us build the skill of focusing. 
he writes that it's easy to think of concentration as a habit, like flossing, where simply deciding you need to do it will allow you to do it, right? Like you've neglected it, but you know you can pick it up in the weeks leading up to your dentist appointment or your test, like whichever side of the metaphor you're on here. Um, but that kind of framework, while attractive because it sounds easy, ignores the real difficulty of focusing, the hours of practice necessary to strengthen your mental muscle. He reminds us that efforts to deepen your focus will fail if you don't simultaneously wean yourself off of a dependence on distraction. And it's not about, I want to be clear, it's not about completely eliminating distraction from your life. There's a time and a place for Instagram, and it's about knowing what that time and place is. If you want to be able to persist through boredom with reading, and let's face it, sometimes readings are boring, even if they're good, then you have to train yourself to resist the pull of distraction when you're bored. It doesn't just count when you need it. It counts all the time in the smallest choices. For me, this means not only when I'm waiting for my drink at Starbucks or waiting for a class to begin, but it also means when I'm unable to figure out how I want to end a paragraph or when an article isn't entertaining me. The pull of distraction is so strong. If I can't resist it in those little, inter little intervals, how can I build up the muscles necessary to resist it for an hour or more at a time? So walk toward boredom, embrace it. What about walking toward difficulty? Sometimes good things come easily. But in my experience, difficulty can often be the sign that something is worth doing. Difficult things have payoff. They reward you. And, and doing difficult things helps you do other difficult things. People who push themselves in exercise, again, just have to take other people's word for it, are able to have better self-regulation in other areas, like stress management, studies, or work. In a sense, they've practiced suffering. Um, writers who sit with a difficult project can push themselves um, and end up with something that they wouldn't have ended up with otherwise. And students who sit with difficult reading will not only be rewarded with greater knowledge and understanding, they'll be better at it the next time they sit down to a difficult reading. You with me so far? You understand? Yeah, great. Okay. And then super fun, let's walk towards embarrassment. Okay, well that's about class discussion. I think besides the fact that they sometimes haven't done the reading, students often don't participate in class discussion because they're afraid of being wrong, of looking stupid. But that's what learning is. Learning is saying something that, something that might be wrong, trying out an idea. How in the world are you ever going to learn if an idea is any good or not if you're too embarrassed to ever say it out loud? And finally, I'd like to remind you to pray. I've been learning recently about the importance of asking our Father for grace to do the things he has called us to do. And it's something I can easily forget in my world of New Year's resolutions. Pray. Ask the Lord to help you shape, help shape you towards deep work and reflection. And while you're at it, please join me in thanking him that we're in a community that doesn't want to be just average in its academic work, that values the nourishment of the written word and the rich discussion that can come around it. Let me pray for us.
Lord and Father, thank you so much for the chance to be here together in this room. Thank you that we cannot do things in our own strength, but that you are here with us. Please help us, Lord. Please help us serve you with a quiet mind. Please help us approach the things that you have laid before us with excitement, with clarity. Just please be with these students as they are heading into the semester. I ask that you would bless their work, bless their reading, and bless their relationships. Um, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.